this uh, very, very uh, lengthy sermon, really the, the most lengthy sermon of the ministry of Jesus. And we find it in the book of Matthew and perhaps a uh, seems to be a, a condensed version of it also in the book of Luke. But uh, we, it's referred to uh, not by Jesus himself or the gospel writers, but uh, but we typically see it referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, you've probably heard that heard that term or that uh, heard of this referred to as that. And we see that referred to in that way because Jesus, in preaching this or delivering this, he was on a hillside or on a mountain, most likely uh, the hillside that's overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And he was there as he uh, has those gathered around him, his followers. This is early on in the ministry of Jesus, soon after he had called his 12 disciples and he had had them. Uh, and so we have then him uh, laying out or beginning this sermon uh, that he gets into, and we we see it in Matthew's chapters five, Matthew chapters five through seven. And tonight we're barely going to scratch the surface of this of this sermon, but I want to dive into it a little bit, and. This it would take us. We we could spend we could spend week upon week on this, and really we just have this week and next week, and then we're going to as a church be going back into our connect groups for the summer, and uh, we'll spend some time uh, in our connect groups then for uh, for a couple of of weeks. I'm going to be out uh, heading up some of the the youth camps, and so I'll be out for a couple of Wednesdays. Uh, myself, and we're going to have a great, great time in our connect groups. Uh, we'll be meeting and, and doing some different things. Uh, in fact, I'll just give a little plug for those now. Our first, uh, we, we're going to have two different options. I'll get back into this Wednesday night. I'm just going to plug this real quick. We're going to have two different options for you uh, on our connect groups uh, when we start these two weeks from tonight. Uh, you can either stay here in the building, although we're going to split off into two areas they're going to be covering the same content, but uh, we have a study that is through Pastor L.J. Harry, uh, who pastors down in southern Ohio, uh, fantastic, fantastic minister, love him. He has uh, uh, ministered at many of our church camps and uh, holiday youth convention, great guy, but he, uh, there is a, a study that he has, and, and Josh, could you remind me of the title of that? That good thing, yes, that good thing is going to be our title uh, for, for four weeks, and uh, it's talking about uh, about being a uh, being uh, a, a godly influence within your workplace and and having a, a ministry it doesn't have to be just a, a ministry that is inside the church, but everywhere that you go that we can be a godly influence and uh, that is that's really the focus of that study. But I, I mentioned that there's two things, two options that you could do. You could stay here in the church and, and uh, take part in that. It's going to be very discussion-based, uh, a lot of conversation. Uh, or you can go on Wednesday nights, meet here, and then we're going to have a group that is going to go out into the community and just just 
walk and pray. And just have conversation, walk and pray. They're going to have different parts or different places within the uh, Kinderville that they will uh, be going out to. And it's just going to be a prayer walk on Wednesday nights uh, that if you would like to take part in that, we want to invite you to do so. And so that will be two weeks from tonight that we'll be starting in on those connect groups. But let's get back into our study for tonight. Matthew's, Matthew chapters 5 through 7 covers the Sermon on the Mount. And this is Jesus um, really, in many ways, uh, his manifesto for the kingdom of God. His, him laying out the thesis for what is the kingdom of God. And I have here as a subtitle for this uh, presenting kingdom culture. Because that's what Jesus does. In this lengthy sermon, lengthy uh, 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 couple of chapters that, that Jesus is speaking here, we see him presenting a very counterculture uh, type of living. It, it didn't, doesn't look anything like the world. What he is presenting as uh, as, as what is expected of those who would be part of the kingdom of God, uh, it is a, a culture that looks very different than that of the world. It is a kingdom culture. Now, just to give us some context for the sermon, we see all the way back into Leviticus chapter 11, verse 45. It says, For I am the Lord that bringeth you up out of the land of Egypt, Jesus, or God speaking here through Moses that uh, to the people after they have been delivered from Egypt, delivered from their bondage, uh, where they had been there for, uh, for generation after generation of bondage and uh, in this pagan culture. Uh, but he's bringing them out of the land of Egypt. And he says, I am to be your God and you shall therefore be holy for I am holy. This was the expectation. Now, this was always the expectation all throughout Scripture was that the people of God were to be a holy people. Now, what does it mean to be a holy people? It means to be set apart, to be a very distinct people that are, are living a different type of life and have different values in a different culture than that of the world. They may live in the world, but they ought not look like, behave, behave like, think like, or act like the world that's around them. It's a different culture. The, the culture of God's kingdom is a different type of culture. It is a holy culture, one that is set apart. It's distinct from that which is around it. I have here a quote uh, that comes from... Uh, pulled from a, a book uh, that was on the Sermon of the Mount. And uh, the author here, John Stott, he says that the essential theme of the whole Bible from beginning to end is that God's historical purpose is to call out a people for himself. That this people is a holy people set apart from the world to belong to him and to obey him. And that its vocation is to be true to its identity, that is, to be holy 
or different in all its outlook and behavior. So we, we see that what Jesus is presenting here isn't totally new. It's not totally foreign. This was really the expectation all throughout Scripture that there is a different way to live when you become part of God's people. When you are part, when you are God's, uh, belong to God's people, you are different than the world around you. But we see that something did shift when Jesus came onto the scene. When the ministry of Jesus began, we see he was baptized by John. The, uh, the God's, uh, the voice came out of heaven, uh, speaking the, uh, that this is my beloved son and whom I'm well pleased. And, and we see then Jesus go into the wilderness and he fasts for 40 days and, and he comes out of that after all the temptation. And, and we see then that it says from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven. Now what he's saying is there is a shift right now that my ministry is beginning that there is a shift in uh, in bringing the kingdom of God to this earth. That there is a different there's uh, Jesus is bringing in a new covenant from that which they had lived in before. The the People of God before had lived under a covenant, which was the law of Moses. And Jesus is beginning to bring in a new covenant, a new, uh, a, a new way to, uh, to be able to, to serve God and to interact with God that can only come through Jesus Christ. It's Christ centered. It's not the sacrifice of animals. It's not, uh, it's not by the, the acts of man. Uh, you know what we can do but now everything will be centered around Jesus Christ and he's bringing with him and with his ministry the kingdom of heaven now even today what or the, the role of the church is to establish the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God that is our role here on earth is to establish the kingdom of God here on earth. Now it will not, it will not be totally established until Jesus comes back. And at that point, we see the finality of the kingdom of God being established here on earth. That's, that will be the fullness of it. But right now, we are still living within the time period of which Jesus was bringing the kingdom of heaven here to earth. And he's doing this by introducing a very countercultural way of living. Something that is very different from the world around us. I, um, I was, was uh, over the last couple of months, uh, I've been talking about this new life. In this new life that we live, after experiencing the new birth, this new life is a life that looks different than the life that we used to live. It's this new life is a life that it no, it's, it's shed the, the sinful things that we used to be bound by. And now we live in the freedom of what Jesus has, has given us. 
This new life, it's not one that is necessarily, um, uh, you know, less, um, you know, it's, it's not necessarily like easier. There's still going to be troubles and trials and things, but, but yet we, we have God there with us through all of that. And we have an expectation to live in, with the kingdom culture in mind. See, kingdom culture is very counter-cultural. Kingdom culture requires a repented life. Now, when we're talking about repentance, it's not just I'm sorry. A repented life, what I mean by that is that you have turned away from the old sinful things and turned toward God. A kingdom culture requires a repented life that is, that is, uh, is shedding the, the old man and the old sinful things and turn towards God. And it's, it is a kingdom culture. It requires righteous living. And that's what we will see throughout this message, throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Every single paragraph of this sermon contrasts the kingdom culture to the secular culture of the world. Every paragraph, so not every verse, but, but within every uh, paragraph of this sermon that Jesus is presenting, we see a contrast between what it's like in the world and what it's like to be living for God within the kingdom of God. Now, if we were to break down this sermon, it's three chapters long, but we see in different parts of the sermon and uh, the, the contents of it. And, you know, you may even ask, uh, you know, at times as you read through scripture, you know, how, how is this relevant to me? What is, what is, uh, you know, Jesus, he was, he was speaking to those people that lived 2000 years ago and in their culture, their culture looked very different from our culture. Although in many ways it looks the same. Uh, you have a lot of the same, uh, sin and you know, the devil, he doesn't have any new tricks. There's still the same things that are happening today that were happening back then. But, how is this sermon that Jesus presents, how is it relevant in our modern day life in this 21st century? And we see, by looking through the contents of this, this sermon, uh, that, that it is very relevant still to us today. We see that he begins with our character. The character that we possess, that we as, as uh, kingdom citizens possess and we we're gonna that's what we're mostly gonna be diving into tonight these are the beatitudes the characteristics of a christian the characteristics of a kingdom uh citizen a a citizen of the kingdom of god and then we see him he, he goes from that into the influence that we have in the world he talks about our influence through two metaphors which are salt and light. And he, he says that we are to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. That is, uh, that we are to have an influence on those around us. And we might get to that tonight. Uh, and that'll probably be the extent of our study tonight. But uh, he, he then goes and we see uh, a, a, a long passage, uh, the rest of chapter 5, where he is speaking about righteousness and what it means to be a righteous person and righteous uh, a Christian, and and we see him addressing the law and and 
and how, uh, you know, our life now um, and, and the law that was passed down to us from Moses, uh, what, what that looks like now within this new kingdom that he is presenting. We, then we see him talking about uh, avoiding anger and avoiding lust. Uh, we see him speaking on the subject of marriage and divorce and, uh, and uh, then even within honest speech. And uh, then we see him uh, even speaking on non-retaliation. This is, uh, you know, if you get slapped, turn the other cheek. That, this, uh, this non-retaliation that we are to have and, and an active type of love. That love is an action that we would have. It's, it's active. We're not going to get into all this tonight. But, uh, but we see this kingdom culture really building, building up within the sermon of Jesus. We see him talk about religion. And how religion is it's not hypocritical. Religion is, is, is real. That that for those, uh, in speaking about religion, he's, he's, he's calling out the hypocrites and saying, don't be hypocritical. Don't, don't have the outside appearance of, of, of living for God where on the inside or, or even, you know, in, uh, in one company uh, you're acting this way and in another's company you're acting another way. No, he's, he said, let's be real. Let's, let's be real in every uh, aspect of our life. Uh, and so then he, he goes from there into speaking about the Christian's prayer and uh, teaches us to pray and, and, and how prayer is, ought not just be the same words repeated, not mechanical, but it ought to be a thoughtful thing. Um, I have a, a little passage, I guess, left out there, and really he's going back into that not being hypocritical but real uh, there from 16 to, to 18. But from verses 19 through 34... Uh, we see Jesus speaking on the Christian's ambition and how uh, our ambition should not be about gaining material wealth, but rather uh, it should be about the things that are spiritual and God's rule. And, uh, and so Jesus speaks on that. We see that kingdom culture discusses relationships and how uh, we have... Uh, our, our relationships between, uh, you know, not just not just our uh, not just our, our spousal relationships, but uh, but our relationships between our brothers and and our father and and the relationships that we have. And Jesus uh, he speaks to that. And then uh, the the last thing that he, he he ends his sermon with in the seventh chapter of Matthew is a radical choice that a Christian makes. And it's a commitment that out of all of this, there is a commitment that he's asking of us. It's not being wishy-washy. It's not saying, you know, and I, I think I might do this one day and, and won't do it the next day. No, it's a radical choice that we make to say, I am committed to being a kingdom citizen. I'm committed to the kingdom of God. I'm committed to being counter-cultural. That's what Jesus is calling us to. Now, as we get into these Beatitudes, I want to, uh, let's see, do I have, uh, here we go, Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 12. Um, 
Let's just open up there and we're going to read this passage here. Jesus, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. I'm sorry, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Okay, I want to just dive into this passage here. It's probably a familiar passage. Uh, the Beatitudes uh, are uh, commonly quoted as these words of Jesus as he goes down these eight qualities, these eight kingdom qualities. And he has this pattern, this very succinct pattern in it of, of presenting the quality that you may have and, and then the reward or the promise that comes with it. And, and we see this, these, these eight things. And, and one thing that I want to uh, note is that he's not describing here eight separate groups of people. He's not, he's not describing the, the, you know, this person over here, they're the, they're the poor, this person over here is the pure in heart, this person over here. Now, he's also, you know, it may not be that we, uh, we would have all of these qualities necessarily all at the same time, uh, though, though we ought to have many of these and we ought, we ought to experience all of these at times in our life. You, when I say that you may not experience all of them all the time, you may not always be having persecution against you, but you will be persecuted. Living a kingdom, living a, a kingdom culture, living within that culture, you will face persecution. See, these are not describing eight separate groups of disciples, but these are eight qualities of the same group of people. These are the expected qualities of every citizen of God's kingdom. These aren't describing just some qualities of the elite group of the citizens of the kingdom of God. Now, this is every citizen of God's kingdom is expected to have these eight qualities that Jesus lists here. And now, each of these is connected to a promise. He says, blessed are pure in heart, blessed are the poor, blessed blessed are these. And then there's a promise that's attached to it. There's, there's a, you know, things that, that God would present as if you uh, are, have this quality in your life, then this will happen or this will be the result of it. And, 
And I want to look here at, first of all, that word blessed or blessed. This comes from the, the Greek word makarios, which means fortunate, well off, or happy. To be fortunate, well off, or happy. Now, I've, I've seen some who uh, would describe this um, simply or translate this simply with that last uh, word there within that Greek definition. Uh, and, and just say, happy are they who are poor. Happy are they who are, um, happy, happy are they who are, who mourn. Happy are they who are meek. And, and, and they describe, in fact, there's, uh, one individual, um, forget his, his name at the moment, but he, he wrote a book that was, uh, he himself was a, um, a psychologist who focused on, uh, mental health. And he, he wrote a book that was talking about the Christian uh, attitudes uh, in relation to mental health and really was pointing to these here. And he himself used this, this definition of happiness and said Jesus was really describing in many ways an attitude that if somebody possesses these attitudes towards life, then they're going to have a positive mental health. Their, their mental health is, is going to be uh, very stable when you possess these qualities that Jesus is talking about. And if you are happy in your, if, if you can maintain happiness in the times where you are poor, if you can maintain happiness in the times of mourning, if you can maintain happiness even when you, uh, you know, or, or or needing mercy or extending mercy, then there is a positive mental health that is the result of that. But I think it goes even beyond that. It's it's because happiness comes and goes, and you can kind of make yourself happy. But when he's talking about being blessed here, it, it goes beyond just something that we can do of our own power or what what we uh, possess here on earth, but. It goes to what God thinks of us and what God declares over us. And, and, and God is declaring that you are blessed when you are poor in spirit. That you are blessed when you are mournful. That you are blessed when you are meek. That God is declaring you are blessed when you hunger and thirst after righteousness and when you are merciful and when you are pure in heart and when you're a peacemaker and when you suffer persecution. God is saying and declaring over you that you are blessed. And I believe that goes to our time here on earth and our existence here on earth as well as what goes beyond that. And we see the, the promises that are connected to it that talk about blessings that are here on earth as well as promises of that which is to come afterwards. See, these eight qualities that, that we see, it's, it, it's these things that God is speaking over us and that God will, uh, or we see these promises that, that God is, is, is uh, speaking into our present day living as well as the future life that we have to come. Now, I do want to um, just address one question that is here, um, and that is about salvation, because there's a few of these promises 
that Jesus attaches, um, and I'll just go over some of them. Uh, the poor in spirit, Jesus speaks of them, and he says that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's another that says that, uh, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Or blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And uh, the right, those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, uh, they, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So are we seeing in these, are they, uh, is Jesus uh, promising salvation to each of these individuals or anybody who would possess these qualities? Is it salvation by human works? Is it salvation by being poor in spirit? Is it salvation by being merciful? Is it by salvation by being pure in heart? And my answer to that would be, no, it's Jesus is not, he is not giving a, a formula for, uh, for what is needed for salvation within this context. He, he addresses that to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. We see Jesus speaking to him about the new birth. We see that addressed to the church in the book of Acts about what is needed for salvation. But what Jesus is, is doing in this is he's addressing the, 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 the way that the world lives and he's pointing them to himself. He's pointing him, them all to Jesus. And we see that throughout the sermon. That it points us away from the world, even away from the old law of Moses, to Jesus. The law sends us to Jesus Christ to be justified by Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only one who can take away our sins. It's nothing that we can do of our own selves. It's nothing that we uh, can, can do of our own merit to, uh, to e- e- obtain eternal life. That we come to Jesus... But when we come to Jesus, he sends us right back to a place of fulfilling righteousness. He sends us right back to the place of sanctification. And so we're drawn to Jesus, and that's the only place that salvation comes. But through that, we become sanctified, and we see the, the sanctified being a synonym for holy set apart to be a saint, which is the same thing as sanctified, to be a saint, just to be holy or set apart. And so all of that, when we come to Jesus, we become sanctified, or he points us to go be sanctified or to be set apart, which includes these eight qualities here. And we're going to We're going to dive into these eight Beatitudes that Jesus addresses here. I just have them listed there, but you might want to take some notes because I want to spend a little bit of time going through these kingdom culture qualities. The first thing that Jesus addresses, he says, the blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit. What's he talking about here? See, the poor in spirit is acknowledging our spiritual poverty. And we are 
spiritually bankrupt in front of God. The fact that we are sinners, we are spiritually bankrupt in front of God. If we come before God at the day of judgment without having our sin rectified, we are completely poor. We are completely bankrupt. There is nothing that we can do to gain entrance into heaven because of the fact that we are sinners. And so we who are poor in spirit are those who recognize our sinful state and recognize in humility that, that, that we come to God as sinners. And there's, there's, there's an old hymn, uh, Rock of Ages, that uh, within that hymn, it has these lines that says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That it's only through him that I can attain eternal life. It's only through him that in the cross that I need to cling to. It's, it's the cross that I need to, need to come to, to, to recognize that my sinfulness is spiritually bankrupting me before God. That, that language there, it's, it's the poor, of the poor in spirit. It's telling us that we don't belong anywhere except alongside the publican. In Jesus' parable, who was crying out with, with his uh, voice and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I, that's, that's me. That's you. We are that publican, that, that same one. And in the ministry of Jesus, we see him going and interacting. And, and, and who, who did he come to minister to? Those who were sick, right? But not physically sick. Although he did heal those who were physically sick, but it was not merely to heal them of their physical sickness. It was to go beyond that and to address the spiritual brokenness and the spiritual poverty that they had. Jesus came to minister to the poor in spirit. Jesus came to minister to those who were in sin and spiritually bankrupt because of their sinfulness. And those who would recognize that, that they, they come to God and, and we see, we see that humility of recognizing my sinfulness and God accepting us because we are not coming with a haughty heart. A prideful heart. And he says that to those who are poor in spirit, they will be given the kingdom of God. Why is that? It's because God's rule, which brings salvation as, as a gift, it's, it's absolutely free. And it's un, you know, we are undeserving of it, but yet it's free to us. And it has to be received with the humility of one who is poor in spirit and recognize it, recognizes their, sinful, their sinfulness. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, he, uh, he has a quote. He says that the way to rise in the kingdom is to sink in ourselves. To come to God in humility. To come to God recognizing, God, I am nothing without you. Those are the poor in spirit. Blessed 
are the poor in spirit, for they shall, or for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he continues on. He says, blessed are those who mourn. Those, they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, this is an interesting one, reading it on its surface, because we see those who mourn around us for, uh, for, for things that have happened in their life that um, you know, cause sadness. Perhaps it's a loved one who passed away, and you see them mourning. But I, it, it seems as, as though that, that this is not what Jesus is speaking about. It's not those that mourn because of a, the, the loss of a loved one or because of something that happened here on earth, but rather he's speaking of those who mourn the loss of their innocence and their righteousness and, and their self-respect. And really what he's talking about is a contrite heart. Coming to God in repentance with a contrite heart or the, more, the proper mourning that would, uh, that would accompany our sinful ways of our past and rather coming to God in full repentance with, a, uh, with full contrition of heart. And he says, when we do that, you will be comforted. Now, what's, uh, what is the promise of God and what is the promise of, uh, of the Messiah? It was of a comforter. Another Name for the, the Messiah was the son of consolation. The one who would console those who are broken in their sin. Broken and they're bound in their sin. And, and the son of the consolation being Jesus, when he came, he came to comfort those who were, were in their sins And now they have turned from their sins toward Jesus Christ. And that's what he's looking for is somebody who will completely have an emotional response about turning from their past life of sinfulness and turning to God. There ought to be emotion involved in our repentance. There ought to be some mourning involved in our repentance. Mourning about who I was. And now God has called me and he has brought me out of it. Amen. I'm thankful for it. I'm thankful for, for uh, what God has, has brought me to, uh, in you know, this life that God has, has brought me into. But, but there ought to be some mourning involved in this. In other words, there ought to be true repentance involved in our coming to God and living within the kingdom of God. He continues on. Better keep going or else we're going to run, run out of time. Said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Again, a an interesting promise that's attached here that the meek shall inherit the earth. As you sure would think that it would be those who are strong and those who are tough. They're the ones that are going to inherit the earth. But he says here that the meek inherit the earth. I also think that it's important to note that this beatitude comes between those who mourn over their sin and those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. 
that the particular form of meekness which Jesus is requiring in his disciples has to do with that sequence of mourning over, mourning in repentance, mourning over your, your sin, your past life of sin, and hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And that's that meekness is denoting a humble and a gentle attitude to others. To the ones who are around us. And, and meekness is recognizing that in my old life I was a sinner. And I'm going to be running into a whole lot of people that are the old me. Right? You're going to encounter a whole lot of people that are like the old you. The old sinful you. And when we're talking about characteristics of being a kingdom, being in the kingdom culture, he introduces here meekness, which is essentially a true view of yourself, but expressing itself in an attitude of how you conduct yourself with others. How do I conduct myself with those who would take advantage of me? How do I conduct myself with those who, uh, not even, you know, about me, but, but they're, they're just sinful people. But I recognize that that's who I used to be. And he says, don't, don't come at them in, in, in a way that, uh, that is condemning them. But rather come to them and interact with those outside of the kingdom with an attitude of meekness. Interact with others who are not within the kingdom of God. Interact with them through meekness, through humility, through sensitivity, being patient in your dealings with others, gentleness. This is the attitude of meekness, is of gentleness. We see Jesus described at uh, various times, both he himself describes him this way, as well as uh, in some of the epistles, it describes Jesus as being gentle and meek and lowly. And that was referring to the way that he dealt with sinners, mostly. It was referring to the way that when Jesus was dealing with those who were in sin, he didn't come right out at them and just start Harping on them and, 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 and now, now those who were self-righteous, he called them out. But those who were completely lost in sin, Jesus dealt with them very gently and in meekness. He had respect for them. This is the attitude of a kingdom culture person. What God has called us to is, is, when we are dealing with sinners, when we are dealing with people who used to be just like, or who are just like who we used to be, then let's have compassion on them. And let's love them. Let's have meekness towards them. Why? Or, or, and what's the, the promise that's connected? He says, for they shall inherit the earth. That there will be Many people that you are dealing with and you're not going to ever truly be able to witness to them 
unless you have an attitude of meekness? How are you truly going to win the lost unless you have an attitude of meekness? Inheriting the earth, talking about, talking about expanding the kingdom of God, expanding the kingdom of God, the influence of the kingdom. How is that ever going to happen unless we have an attitude of meekness rather than being harsh in, everything, in all of our speech and, and hateful towards those who don't love God? Of, of course they don't act like you, but it's, it's because they haven't had their life transformed the way you've had your life transformed. So let's be different. Let's be a different people, countercultural, living a kingdom culture. He continues on. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Spiritual hunger is a characteristic of all of God's people. And, and there, our, our supreme ambition should be spiritual, not material. Christians... We're not like the world that is engrossed in all the pursuit of, a, of all the possessions that we can get and, and you know, what uh, they themselves would seek after first, but rather we should seek first the kingdom of God and all His benefits and all the things that are connected to that. And we should seek and hunger and thirst after righteousness. See, it's not... Enough just to mourn over our past sin, but we also must hunger and thirst after righteousness and the future of righteousness. I, I want to mourn my past sin and have contrition over that in my time of repentance, but it's not just all looking back at that and saying, boo hoo, boo hoo. I'm, you know, that's what I used to be like and, and now I'm just, you know, slowly backing away from that into my future. No, it's seeking after the things of God and hungering after the things of God and then living a righteous life and saying, God, I'm hungry for more of this. I want more of what you have for me. God, fill my plate up. Fill my plate up, God. I want more righteousness. I want more. I want to seek after the things that you have called me to. Now, what does Jesus say to the woman at the well? She's saying, you mean you have something better to drink than this water right here? You have something better to drink than, than the water that comes from the, this well of our patriarchal father, forefather? And Jesus says, if you were to drink of my water, you will never thirst again. If you drink... From my well and the water that I have. And Jesus is talking about the spirit here. He's saying if you drink of this, it's something that will, it, your, your thirst, it's never going to, uh, going to have to be stopped. You're always going to be uh, coming back and back and back and needing or wanting more of this. You're never, you're, this is going to be overflowing out of you. You'll never thirst again. And what he's talking about is you'll never thirst again for the things of the world. That's what Jesus is talking about. You want to come back and get 
get more of it and get more of it. It's, you're not going to just drink it one time and then, and then that's it. No, you come back and you get more and you get more and you're going to hunger and thirst. And, and like all of these beatitudes, really, it's a, it's a lifelong pursuit of hungering and thirsting after the things of God. And you get more of it and more of it. And it ought to push out a hunger and a thirst for anything that the world has to offer. See, not till we reach heaven. Are we truly going to hunger no more and thirst no more? It's only then that we're really going to have access to the springs of living water that are up in heaven. Amen. Let's continue on here. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the merciful. It says, for they shall uh, obtain mercy. Mercy. Mercy is compassion for the people that are in need. Now, this, this is distinguished from grace. We, we a lot of times see mercy and grace together. Uh, grace is more so uh, talking about the sin itself and, and our, our um, absolution from that, that sin and the relief, the pardon from the sin. But mercy is dealing with you know, the ongoing things and, and the misery, the distress, these results of sin. And so the mercy that we have is, is dealing with the results of sin. And, and God's righteousness is here for us. And, and we have mercy that we are to show others. We are to show others the mercy that God showed to us. Blessed are they who are merciful. Jesus speaks on forgiveness in, in other passages. And, and he says, if I've forgiven you this great big debt, then you ought to forgive others of the very small debt that they may owe you. And that's the kind of mercy that Jesus is speaking of here, this kingdom culture type of mercy. Amen. I better wrap this up quick. Blessed are the pure in heart. What is Jesus speaking of with the pure in heart? The pure in heart, what he's talking about is... Uh, I don't have time to fully explain it, but he's, he's talking about those who are not living hypocritical. Those who are not play acting. Those who are not, uh, uh, they're, they're not living with hypocrisy in, the, in their own lives, but rather you are pure. You are 100% true of who you are all the time. That you don't have two lives that you're living. You're pure in hearts, that's that when you're pure in heart before God, you're you're not one way with one crowd and another way with another crowd. You are completely pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed also are the peacemakers. Now, Jesus also says later on in his ministry that those who follow him and are true disciples of his, they will present division even within their own family. That there will come times where there's mother against daughter and father against son. and Even within your own household, you'll have enemies. And so there will... Be struggles and strife, but here's what Jesus never presents for us as 
citizens of the kingdom of God is that we would be the ones that are trying to bring division. Jesus never instructs for us to be the ones to bring conflict into a situation. No, be a peacemaker. He's calling us to be peacemakers, not one who would harbor in conflict and love the conflict and the drama and all of this. And, and no, he, he's saying, let's live peaceably with all men. Let's, now, that involves forgiveness as well. Let's, let's forgive others. Now, he wraps it all up with this last thing that he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. And it may seem strange that Jesus would pass from peacemaking to persecution. He's saying, one, I want you to be bringing peace to all things, but yet there's going to be hostility towards you. I want you to be a peacemaker, but there's going to be those who are persecuting you. Be a peacemaker. Oh, but somebody's going to hate you and revile you and say all these bad things about you. But blessed are they who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Persecution is simply the clash between kingdom culture and the culture of this world. It's the clash between two value systems that are very different. And the expectation that Jesus had for his disciples under persecution was that they would rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad. Don't retaliate like the unbeliever would retaliate. Don't sulk like a child and lick your wounds in self-pity. And no, don't don't just grin and bear it like, like a stoic. No, he, he says, I want you to rejoice and be glad. Why? Because great is your reward in heaven. Through it all, give God praise. Through it all. Let's, let's give God praise. Let's, let's come to Him and understand that persecution is going to come my way. And I'm not going to get everybody on my side and bring peace in every situation. There will be those who will, who will revile against me and persecute me. But I conclude that, that the fact that this, this is happening is just, a, just stating even more succinctly that I am part of a different culture. I am living counterculture. I am kingdom culture. That's what Jesus is calling us to. That this is the normal mark of a Christian disciple. That we are pure in heart. Or in, and through it we ought to be pure in heart and merciful. Understanding that troubles come our way. and People, they will persecute us. But glory to God. The kingdom of heaven is mine. Glory to God. There is something greater on the horizon. Amen. I'm thankful for it. I'm so thankful for the promises of God. We're already past our time here tonight, but I do have finishing here, and we'll just get into this later at a later time. But the next thing that Jesus goes into in his Sermon on the Mount is speaking about the influence that we would have. That we ourselves would be influencers. That 
He gives here and he lays out, beginning his Sermon on the Mount with all of these beatitudes, all of these things, these attitudes that we would possess, these qualities that we would possess. And then he goes from that to saying, okay, this is how you live. It's very different from the world. Now, go and be an influence in the world. Don't just stand here as, as being different, but go into the world and let's make, let's have an impact in it. Be salt, be light. When you look at the darkness that's around you, in fact, I'll close with this. I was uh, talking yesterday with a, a pastor friend of mine, pastors over in uh, Dayton, uh, Dayton, Ohio, and uh, he was telling me about a, an interaction that he had uh, last week. He was at Chipotle. Uh, him and his 15-year-old daughter uh, going through the line at Chipotle. And uh, they were there. And uh, his daughter just struck up a conversation with the cashier, this, uh, this gentleman who was, who was there. And uh, he began to just talk to her about, you know, saying just this craziness that's going on in our world. I don't understand it. I don't, you know, these, uh, up in Buffalo, uh, um, Buffalo, New York, the, the shooting that's happened there and people are just killing each other and, and then this uh, mass shooting down in, in Texas and, and, just, and, and she began to, to just talk to him about, you know, about, about some of this and all of a sudden he, uh, the pastor, uh, he was, he said, I was in the midst of trying to make a decision between whether I get guacamole on my tacos or not and God began to Work on me and say, your daughter's over here having a spiritual conversation with this guy. And you need to interject something into this conversation. And so he just, he begins to, to go over. He walks back over to where that man is and he says, you're close to it, brother. You just need to make the altar call. And the man says, what are you talking about? He says, you're close to the answer, but you're not quite there. He says, it's not about trying to take the darkness out of the world. It's about being a light in the midst of the darkness. We have it. We have the answer. The only answer to all of this darkness that's around us is Jesus Christ. The only answer to all this darkness that's around us in this world is to present Jesus Christ. And that's... That, my friend, is the only thing that is going to break the back of, of the evil in this world is by being the salt and the light to this world that's around us. And when we present light to darkness, darkness has no answer but to flee. Darkness has no answer but to flee. And Jesus Christ, and Jesus himself, I believe, he did not back away or shy away from the fact that light overcomes darkness every time. We may look around and say, what impact can we really have in this lost world, this dark world? But Jesus seemed to believe that we could have a ginormous, a huge impact on this world if we could only be the salt and keep the saltiness. And if we could only be the light, but don't hide our light by trying to be like the world's. Let's be an influencer. Let's, let's be somebody who would impact the world around us. In a world full of darkness, be the salt. Or be in a world full of darkness, be the light. In the, in the world full of decay, let's be the salt that preserves it. Let's be influencers in this 
lost world. I mean, let's stand in this place here tonight.